You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. New details tonight in the mass murder in one of Toronto's most vibrant neighborhoods. Onlookers horrified yesterday afternoon as a van plowed down a Toronto street on and off the sidewalk. Ten people were killed, 15 others injured, and at least one of the injured is in critical condition. The suspect, 25-year-old Alec Manassian, now charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder and 13 counts of attempted murder. Police remain on the scene tonight as the accused appears in court. Global's Catherine McDonald begins our coverage. Led by a police convoy, Alex Manassian, the 25-year-old accused of carrying out a deadly rampage, leaves the Finch Avenue courthouse in a police wagon under tight security. Keep backing up, guys. Give him some room. Thank you. Have you... Have you spoken to your son? Give him some room, guys. His father was there to see his son for the brief appearance, at times wiping back tears, unable to answer questions lobbed at him by the massive media throng. Was your son sick? What would you like to say on behalf of your son? Was your son sick, sir? Was your son mentally ill? Manassian appeared briefly wearing a white prison jumpsuit, his hands cuffed behind his back, sporting a buzz cut. The Crown Attorney then told the Justice of the Peace, Mr. Manassian is the alleged driver of the van that killed 10 people and injured many others on Young Street yesterday afternoon, before announcing he was facing 10 counts of first-degree murder and 13 additional counts of attempted murder. Manassian looked calm, showing little emotion and only said a few things. His name when he was asked, and that he understood that he could have no contact with a 13 alleged victims who survived the attack. Police now confirm they're looking at this cryptic message Manassian is alleged to have posted on his Facebook page moments before the attack. A message in which he talks about being celibate because women are not interested and praising a man who killed six people at the University of California, Santa Barbara in 2014 before killing himself. According to his LinkedIn page, Manassian studied at Seneca College and was in computer science and just last fall had a short stint in the Canadian Armed Forces. Yes, we can't can confirm that this, this member uh, was in, uh, in uh, training for 16 days and that he will volunteer and withdrew. At Seneca, there is disbelief. Like every other Torontonian, I'm uh, really shocked and appalled by what happened. While neighbours on the quiet Richmond Hill Street where the accused lived with his parents and brother say they never saw this coming. It's startling. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's a heartbreaking situation for everybody, including the, uh, the family of the young man. What can I say? Well, in light of that Facebook post by Manassian about feeling rejected by women, the mayor and police chief have revealed the majority in the deadly rampage were, in fact, women. Yeah, that's fair to say, predominantly female. Can you talk about age range? Uh, age range, it was anywhere between uh, uh, your mid-20s uh, up to uh, the area of 80s. And while the names of the victims haven't officially been released, we are learning more tonight through family and friends about those killed, including a BC connection. Nadia Stewart has more on that part of the story, including the growing memorial in their honour. Shock giving way to grief and sadness in Toronto. The city and country now praying for those 14 survivors, among them Amaresh Tesfamariam. Her family now anxious to fly from Texas to be by her side at Sunnybrook Hospital. She's a single woman, has no kids, she works every day. Self-made woman, it's just really hard to see that someone like this would happen to her. For someone that's so like happy and joyous. 
You can see the joy on Dorothy Sewell's face. The 80-year-old grandmother was an avid sports fan before she was killed on Monday. Her grandson, who lives in Kamloops, tells Global News Sewell was the best grandmother anyone could have asked for. Almost had as much love for the Blue Jays and Leafs as she did her own family. Amir Q. Marcy's normal life was also interrupted on Monday. An instructor at Ryerson University, he's counted among the injured. Ryerson also acknowledging they lost an alumni, Anne-Marie D'Amico, being described by her family as caring and kind. On Young Street, the unfamiliar stillness prompting many to stop and think. For me, it's put into perspective what a lovely city and country we live in. We try not to be bitter. I must say, seeing Young Street without traffic, it's very unusual. It never happens. Aras Rashidakani was among the first on scene, helping the injured. He too was shunning bitterness, praising the community's resilient response. It speaks to the testament of this, the strength of the community, that people come back together and they didn't like uh, these kind of events to divide them, to create fear among them. Choosing to spread love and hope instead. This growing memorial, a symbol of a big city with an even bigger heart. Nadia Stork, Global News. And Global's Jamie Marocker is live at that memorial tonight. Still so hard to believe what happened there yesterday. Jamie, how are people processing their grief? Well, I mean, there have been tears, countless tears at this memorial. But then on the flip side, there's also been comfort. I just witnessed a woman kneel down here talking about what she saw yesterday, write a message here, and then somebody else lift her up and give her a hug, a complete stranger. And it just goes to show how much this community has really come together. And we have seen this community out here in full force. The rain has not stopped anybody from coming out. We've seen everybody from the Premier of Ontario to Toronto's mayor. We've seen... Canadian Armed Forces officers down here, police officers who attended that scene the other day down here, complete strangers who have no connection to these victims other than they are all Torontonians, they are all Canadians, and they feel for one another coming down here to send their messages of support. And that's really what this has become, uh, you know, Toronto strong, a day of uh, togetherness. Yeah, for sure. Mourners coming in. Throughout the day and now into the evening, Jamie, what about the police presence in the area right now? Yeah, so there are still quite a few officers in the area. Actually, Young Street opened up not that long ago, which is why you're seeing quite a few people in this area. Once it opened up and essentially work let out, so around 5 p.m. Eastern, this area was flooded with people. A vigil also just ended here, so that's why we're seeing a lot of people still milling about. But yes, Young Street is open. Police are asking people not to come down if they have to, and they're going to be sticking around for the next few days. I imagine they will be. All right, Jamie, thank you for that. Well, Jimmy mentioned people supporting one another. And as we've seen before in the wake of tragedy, people are coming together to raise money for victims and their families. And once again, a GoFundMe page has been set up to help. Already, it's over $114,000. That money raised in just a day, donated by about 2,000 people. The creator of this fund indicating money's raised here will help with funeral expenses. A lot of praise today for the actions of the police officer who managed to keep his cool in a life-or-death situation and arrest Alec Manassian without firing a shot. Global's Sean O'Shea has more on how it went down and the officer involved. I'm not so sure that a lot of police officers may have made the same decision, but he waited and he made the right choice, obviously, at the end. Praise from this former police chief for the officer who did this single-handedly talked down the man suspected of killing 10 people with a van 
and did it without firing a shot. What he did in terms of his response was was perfect. You know, perfect by the book de-escalation. Toronto Police Constable Ken Lamb tells the suspect to get down. He's holding what could have been a gun. Kill me, the man shouts, but Lamb isn't buying it. We warned them about suicide by cop and we warned them about to watch their actions, their body language. And he read this fellow right to the T. He had him totally figured out. Lamb holsters his service revolver and pulls out his baton instead. This officer showed that he had the, the correct characteristics and the training in order to handle this event. It's a much different outcome from what happened on a Toronto street five years ago. Sammy Yateen was armed with a pocket knife holed up in his streetcar when Toronto Police Constable James Forsillo fired nine bullets at the teenager who died of his injuries. Forsillo was convicted of attempted murder. That incident put police training under more scrutiny. Critics said there needed to be more focus on de-escalation techniques, especially in cases where mental illness could be a factor. Really what needs to change is the police culture of always going in, guns drawn. Lamb takes charge and is hailed as an officer who used his head. For him to shut off the siren on the police car, to turn off the overhead lights, things that were would agitate the subject, he had the presence of mind to do that. This officer should be commended, should be held up within the police services as a hero for doing things the right way. With the thanks yeah. of those who saw it, it right cup. up it close. Good job, man. Hey, good job. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is releasing a criminal profile of the person they believe may have murdered Marissa Shen. The teenager's body was found in Burnaby Central Park last July. Aramina Dea has the details on what they revealed today and why it's drawing some criticism, too. Ramina. Chris, IHIT has recruited RCMP profilers who believe the killer may have lived in the area here near the park. They're asking the public to pay attention to seven different behaviors. Marissa Shen's murder was random. We still don't know how the 13-year-old was killed or why. And if you recognize these characters in somebody that you know, you need to call on you need to contact Ahit today. Ahit is talking about the killer's profile. The mystery suspect may have unexpectedly moved and avoided Central Park following Shen's death. The killer may have started to withdraw from social or family activities, missed work or appointments, and may have been suicidal. The killer may have paid special attention to media coverage of Shen's death and engaged in increased or decreased substance abuse. I mean, it's a last resource. Well, what do you do? Now what do you do? You're lost. You're lost your clues and try to find something. The public not convinced the criminal profile will help ID the killer. It's good that they have it, but it needs to be more specific. Like, it's too general at the moment. These are compiled by very capable and experienced criminal profilers of the RCMP. We don't put these up just for no reason. The last update three months ago when I hit released new surveillance video of Shen walking into Tim Hortons on McKay Avenue near Metrotown on July 18th. Hours later, her body was found in the bushes in Central Park on July 19th. It's fading in people's memories. Um, it's going, moving steadily towards being a cold case, which is a very harsh thing to say, but uh, reality is often that way.
All right, Ramina, what are investigators saying about any potential suspects in this case? Not a lot, Chris. The list is evolving. At last count, there were 90 persons of interest. The only thing I hit would say today is that new names have been added to that list while others have been dropped. Chris. All right, Ramina, thank you. Nearly a decade after the shooting death of Lisa Dudley, the coroner's service announcing today an inquest will be held this summer. Dudley and her boyfriend, Guthrie McKay, were shot inside their mission home back in 2008. Jeff Hastings has more on what happened and why Dudley's family feels the inquest won't have the impact they would like. Lisa Dudley died a decade ago. 37 years old, she spent days gravely wounded, paralyzed on the floor of her mission home after being shot. She lived four days, dying, and was still able to communicate when they found her. So that's wrong. She passed away soon after. Her boyfriend, Guthrie McKay, was also killed. A neighbor heard the shots and called police. A cruiser came by. The officer didn't get out, didn't speak to the caller, and didn't find Lisa, who was still alive. Her family has long demanded answers, demanded a coroner's inquest. And this June, it will finally happen, but they're not sure it will change anything. The outcome of a coroner's inquest is they deliver recommendations. There is no uh, impetus or force behind them. Despite that, they want attention. They want a spotlight on the case and aren't letting pessimism about the system nullify the importance of the inquest to come. And I think it would be inappropriate of me to prejudge my peers, those six or seven people that will be on the uh, inquest jury. I have no comment. Four men have been convicted in the deaths, including Dudley's former business partner, Thomas Holden. Dudley's family is focused beyond those convictions. They want systemic change, especially around accountability and the RCMP. I'm not looking for revenge, nor is my wife. Our family isn't. But there's a there's an injustice there somewhere that hasn't been addressed, and I don't think it ever will be addressed that way. Jeff Hastings, Global News. Three people are recovering after an early morning crash involving a police cruiser. The high-speed collision happened in Vancouver's West End. Police say the cruiser was southbound on Denman with lights activated, responding to a robbery call when a silver Acura flew through the intersection at Alberni, smashing into it. The Acura ended up on the sidewalk, damaging a restaurant patio. The lone occupant of that vehicle, a 29-year-old Vancouver woman, was not injured. Police say she is under investigation for impaired driving. And a West Vancouver man who had his 2015 Ferrari impounded last summer after being clocked going 210 kilometers an hour over the Lionsgate Bridge has pleaded guilty to excessive speeding. 23-year-old Yi Hao Wang will be sentenced next month. His 16-month driving ban continues until November. There has been a dramatic increase in thefts from vehicles in Vancouver in the first quarter of 2018. Police seeing an almost 40% jump, prompting a reminder to drivers about the simple steps to protect your belongings. Grace Key reports. Yep. Cleaned out. Wednesday night, Jill's husband forgot to bring his guitar and two ukuleles into the house. The next morning, when he went to his truck, they were gone. Pretty devastating. He loved his Martin guitar. That guitar actually meant a lot to him, and he's lost it, and so you can't really replace it. 
There's been a dramatic increase in thefts from vehicles this year in Vancouver. From January to March of last year, there were 2,521 thefts. This year, 3,515, about a 40% increase. There's no specific neighborhood that's being targeted. Police say it is a preventable crime. Simple things that you leave in your vehicle every day that you might not think are valuable to you might be enough just to tempt somebody to break your window. As for Jill, luckily there was no damage to the truck. They checked out some pawn shops but aren't hopeful in ever seeing the instruments again. Leave nothing in your truck. Yeah. But first, BC's shortage of health care providers has sparked an unusual dispute. A Vancouver Island woman says her doctor removed her as a patient after she went to a walk-in clinic. Richard Zussman reports. Apparently, doctors do this, that they just take you off of their list. It's a relationship Rachel Wilson was hoping wasn't going to end. Last month, the Victoria woman couldn't get in to see her family doctor. So she went to a walk-in clinic. Then when she called to make an appointment with her GP, she was told her file was deactivated. And I asked her why that would be, and she said, oh, it looks like you've been going to walk-in clinics. And I said, well, yeah, when there's a month-long waiting list, of course I have to go to a walk-in clinic. She posted the story of Dr. Jeff Wiley no longer wanting her as a patient at Oak Bay Medical on social media, and she's now filing an official complaint with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. But I've been his patient for five years. I don't know why all of a sudden we wouldn't be getting along. Um, I haven't seen him in ages because I can't get in for, a, for an appointment. Now the Wilson is no longer able to go visit Dr. Wiley. She had to get on a wait list to see another family doctor. A wait list, she says, could take six years to get to the top of. I have, of course, great sympathy for the person involved or anyone in that circumstance. Wiley's office turned down multiple requests for an interview. The college also declined a media request and would only correspond by email, not returning phone calls. Guidelines provided by the college include reasons for why a patient could be dumped, including threatening or abusive behavior, posing a risk or harm to the physician, or a physician chooses to reduce the number of patients they treat. None of these issues seem to be at play here. Appropriately, I think in this case, a person's gone to the College of Physicians and Surgeons and uh, they'll look at the details of the case and review both sides because there always are uh, both sides. For Wilson, she's worried about not having a doctor. All because of a breakup, she says, never should have happened. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. More rental housing and a crackdown on tax evasion from condo flipping. That's the goal of some aggressive new legislation introduced by the NDP today. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria. And Keith, some of the penalties have increased drastically. Yeah, penalties for developers who are going to be in non-compliance with some tough new rules regarding condo flipping. More on that in a moment. But here's basically the three bills dropped today by the NDP government. Uh, pretty substantive. First of all, it's going to be giving uh, municipalities uh, more power uh, to build more rental housing. Uh, they've had some shackles that are going to be removed if, if they so like. Uh, so that's the goal there to increase uh, the number of, of uh, vacancies for tenants. Also, uh, all communities are going to be required to compile all sorts of data on housing needs within their local boundaries in order to make some, some key decisions on what basically has to happen in terms of building housing. And finally, you mentioned those penalties for developers. That comes down through the crackdown on tax evasion arising from condo flipping. A lot of uh, developers have been avoiding uh, the property transfer tax, the capital gains tax, and they haven't been filing proper information. So the fines, as you mentioned, Chris, go from 50000 to $500,000 if they're found guilty. Carol James, though, today, the finance minister stressing, even with these moves, it's going 
going to take a long time to fulfill the NDP's rather ambitious 30-point housing plan. Here's the minister. We are not going to solve the housing crisis overnight. Um, it took a long time. It took 16 years of neglect to get us here. And it's going to take time to address it. But I have to tell you that I am incredibly proud of the actions that we have taken as government to begin to address this crisis. So three bills today to get added to the order paper. Here's the problem, folks. Uh, they're running out of time here, the legislature. Only 12 more sitting days left. There's going to be about a dozen bills still on the order paper as of uh, later this week. Not enough time to debate all of them. So some of them are going to be held over to the order paper on, on the fall sitting. And that could include one of the housing bills released today. We'll know more about that within the next couple of weeks. All right. Keith Baldry in Victoria. Thanks, Keith. new lieutenant governor officially sworn in at the legislature in Victoria. Janet Austin is the former CEO of the YWCA Metro Vancouver and has served on boards such as TransLink and the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Austin performed a ceremonial inspection of the Honor Guard and received a 15-gun salute. She will be the province's 30th representative of the Queen. Congratulations to her. Now, the NDP government is taking more heat tonight for its controversial attempt to cut daycare costs. Nearly half of eligible daycare providers have decided not to sign up for the subsidy. And for at least one that tried, it was a disaster. Kylie Stanton explains why. We have 20 upstairs in our preschool program and eight babies downstairs in our infant toddler. 28 childcare spots. And their parents are all eager to get a promised discount on their fees. Initial reaction, awesome. That's what we need. We need cheap childcare so that everybody can work, everybody can afford it, because it's hard. It's expensive. But it hasn't turned out that way for Alphabet Zoo Early Learning Centre after its application to opt into the province's new childcare fee reduction program was denied. They said um, because we've only been here two years, we don't have enough history to show that we have rate increases and things like that and, and have established ourselves. It's one of 57 centres to be rejected. More than 1,500 providers have applied. 1,100 have been approved. The rest are under review. The minister calls that a success. There's already tw over 22,000 families that are benefiting from this program and then there's more to come. But less than half of the eligible facilities have actually applied to opt in. The opposition claims that lack of participation is likely linked to the lack of control they're signing up for. The government, according to the contract, can stipulate the fees that the providers will have to charge. These people are operating a business and they have to know that they can recover the cost of their operation. And this is our infant room. It was a chance this daycare provider was willing to take. Making matters worse, she had already passed on the savings to the families as instructed. $100 for children over three and $350 for children under three. Now she has no choice but to ask for it back and reinstate the pricing while continuing to jump through the hoops of getting approved. It's uh, not fair to them. It's not fair to our business. It's not fair to my staff. So it's, uh, it's a challenging, horrible spot to be in right now. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Returning now to our top story, the deadly van attack in Toronto. Yeah, and the ripple effects felt out here on the West Coast. But first, a new timeline of the rampage that left 10 dead and many more injured. 
Just before 1.30, the call comes in for pedestrians struck in North Toronto. The city about to learn this was no accident. In the minutes that followed, the full horror began to unfold. A white rental van had gone on a rampage. It mounted the sidewalk southbound on Young near Finch, hitting a number of people. The driver continued to speed south through the canyon of condos and business towers. The van drove up the sidewalk in Mel Lastman Square, striking many more victims. Still further south, near Shepherd, another group run down. As paramedics responded to the victims, the two-kilometer trail of carnage came to an end just south of Shepherd. The suspect pulled onto a side street and got out of the vehicle, leading to a showdown of sorts with a Toronto police officer. And the fact that we're seeing mass murder by vehicle in this country is raising new questions about sidewalk safety. And some are asking, is it time to start considering the kind of measures that have become common in Europe? Ted Chernecki reports. There are probably hundreds of so-called soft targets in Metro Vancouver. You can see some what-if thought has gone into some popular places, but there are many more where the public is vulnerable. We do obviously prepare for as many scenarios as we possibly can. Yes, you do see those trucks parked across streets during Remembrance Day ceremonies or fireworks nights, but police will be the first to tell you they cannot protect everyone. Everywhere you go now, people are looking at their cell phone. In reality, you are your best defense against an attack, but sadly, more than ever, we're tuned out. Even in his retirement years, Delta's former police chief never stops casing out his surroundings. When my wife and I will go into a restaurant, she'll give me maybe five to ten minutes, and then she'll say to me, okay, are you finished assessing the situation? By contrast, check out these three. With the Toronto police officer's gun drawn, they seem oblivious to the standoff. And they walked right behind the bad guy, right past the incident, and carried on. And I don't think it was till they got to the corner that they perhaps realized what had just happened. Good job, man. Hey, good job. That officer, now hailed a hero, also protected a key piece of evidence. The killer can now be psychoanalyzed, and that might prevent another attack. In police jargon, is called upstream security risk, identifying the danger before a suspect even gets behind the wheel. We have to look at the upstream drivers here, uh, whether it's uh, investing in mental health and making sure people are not having psychotic episodes, uh, making sure we're doing upstream work. Toronto should be a wake-up call for the mobile screen obsessed. These days, it might mean walk and text at your peril. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A warning now about this next video. It is disturbing. Officials in Peru have arrested two men in connection with the murder of a B.C. man. The suspects were identified by the video showing 41-year-old Sebastian Woodruff lying in a puddle while a man puts a rope around his neck. His body was later found in a shallow grave. Woodruff was killed because villagers believed he had murdered a respected indigenous leader. Peruvian police say they are still investigating that murder. And now some video of police ingenuity and the best of human nature, which is getting a lot of attention online. Detroit police shared this picture of 13 semi-trailers parked under an overpass. A man was perched on the top of that overpass, threatening to jump. Officers organized the semis to stop underneath, giving them time to convince the man to walk off the overpass and get medical help. 
in Health Matters tonight. A new study is raising questions about the possible dangers of an integral part of soccer. A study of 300 amateur soccer players by the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York says heading balls might cause more brain injuries than accidental collisions. The researchers say players who headed the ball most tended to have the poorest reaction times and attention spans. Surprisingly, they found no connection between accidental head impacts during a game and cognitive performance. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A bunch of motorcyclists roar down a road in Arizona when they see something that makes them pull a very quick U turn. Their good deed, right after the forecast. And just before that forecast, a quick look at what they're dealing with in Alberta. The Rosebud River is extremely wide, wider than I've ever seen it before. More than a dozen counties and towns are being hit by floodwaters caused by rapid snowmelt. Crews have been working to prevent flooding, but many homes, roads and bridges are already underwater. More than 70 people have been evacuated in the town of Drumheller, where they have declared a state of emergency. Shot of the old last chance saloon there, almost underwater. Okay, let's check in with Christy. Conditions couldn't be any better, I think, where she is down at Kitts Beach this evening. <laughs> That's right. What a day to hit the beach, you guys. Hundreds of people down here enjoying walking, running, playing volleyball, and of course, relaxing. Uh, it has been six and a half months since we've seen a stretch of weather like this. Now, you'll notice, though, it is a little cooler down here. No one's suntanning necessarily behind me, and I do have a scarf on. There is a bit of a breeze, and we've started to see just some high-level cloud in the last little while, but areas inland have heated up significantly today with that sun 24 degrees and it's going to get even hotter tomorrow and the next day check out these numbers looking out around the region highs for tomorrow now near the water 19 to about 21 degrees depending on your location areas further away Surrey, for example, 23 and up the Fraser Valley, 25 to 26 degrees. Sensational conditions. So tomorrow and Thursday will be the hottest for coastal regions. If you're further inland, expect the heat right through until Saturday. So it's these days here, those first four that you see, that we are going to be watching the flood situation quite uh, drastically. And first of fire bans issued, larger open uh, fires are banned now in Quinell, Central Caribou, which is near Williams Lake, Chilcotin and 100 mile house right through until late September. Keep in mind, even though we're talking about the potential for flooding, that's really just lower elevations. Anywhere at higher elevations where we've uh, seen that snow melt already, it dries out really quickly in this type of weather, and that's why that concern for uh, fire is certainly still there. Some cloud cover, and that's why we're seeing it here on the beach. You can see just a weak front, but that clears out overnight. Here's your forecast for tomorrow. Right out across the province, sensational conditions, mid-teens in the Caribou, and and central interior, 20-degree weather in through the southern Okanagan, uh, heating up to upper 20s come the weekend. South coast, 25 away from the water tomorrow, 26 in the Fraser Valley. And as I mentioned, Thursday, even hotter. Now, Friday, we cool off, but only slightly. Still a beautiful day. No rain in the forecast, you two, until the weekend. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. An Arizona motorcyclist is hoping his video will change some attitudes.
Patrick Patterson and friends were riding through Phoenix when they spotted an elderly woman trapped in the middle of a busy road trying to cross against the light. After Patterson pointed her out to the others, they all quickly turned around and raced back. They positioned their bikes to stop traffic so the woman could get to the other side safely. Patterson posted the video, hoping it will change people's perceptions of bikers. Very good deed. Nice. As long as they don't go ripping past me at 200 kilometers an hour, that's a, that's a good thing. Squires well, they're helping a, a woman cross the street. Maybe. That is true. That right. is true. I think seven's a lucky number, isn't it? Uh, no, not always. If you're playing craps and you're not playing dark side and someone rolls a seven, everybody loses. <laughs> so it's not lucky. Craps. Product of a misspent youth I right know. here. And, a and adulthood. And even more misspent adulthood. My youth, I was pretty good, but once I became an adult, it was all downhill from there. Uh, okay. Only one of the eight first-round NHL playoff series will go seven games, and it's the one that most thought would need the maximum, Boston and Toronto. But it's how they got to the seventh game that was not foreseen. Toronto down 2-1 and 3-1 in the series. They learned some playoff lessons, they learned them fast, and they rallied, and now they have a chance for a memorable moment. You don't remember everything in your life. What you do is you remember moments. Here's Plakanitz, scores! You want to create those moments. You want to create memories. Here's an opportunity for us to create memories. And it could be a memory that erases a nightmare of a seven-game series with the Bruins five years ago when Toronto blew a two-goal lead late in the final game and lost in overtime. But this Leafs team is led by a Stanley Cup winning coach who doesn't see game sevens as anxiety-ridden. The first 10 minutes in Boston should be a ton of fun. And uh, what an opportunity, and I think that's how we got to go about it, is what an opportunity is for all of us. And I've said this before, as a player, you want to be known as someone who gets it done when it matters. And all that means is doing your simple part for the group to have success. Getting it done when it matters, that best describes Frederick Anderson's play the last two games. Now, without good goaltending, no team wins in the playoffs. And early on, Toronto wasn't getting good goaltending from Anderson. But obviously, that has changed. He's been good for us all year long, and he trusts himself. And That doesn't mean, as a professional athlete, at times he, he, your confidence isn't wavered a little bit, but he's dug himself out of where he was in, and he's been a key part for us all year long. There's no reason he won't continue to be. If you're wondering, home teams do have the edge in Game 7s historically. They have won 59% of the time. But there is a more important stat than that. Scoring first in Game 7 is a huge deal, I can tell you that. That's right. The team that scores first in Game 7 wins 75% of the time. And despite Boston being the favorite going into this deciding game, there is a belief, at least as far as the coach is concerned, that Toronto will get it done. You know, we've been talking about all along. We're playing a really good team in Boston. The series is fun. It's high-end. There's no room. Uh, they got high-end players. Uh, but we think we're going to win. We're shipping up to Boston for Game 7. 
Okay, so tomorrow will be the end of the first round of the playoffs. Now, the second round will start Thursday. Penguins and Capitals again. Uh, game one of that series. No, Alex Ovechkin has never been beyond the second round in his career. That's amazing. And Vegas, yes, remember them. And San Jose, remember them. They'll play game one of their series tomorrow. Those two teams have been waiting for what seems like months. They swept their series both of their series in four straight. It hasn't been months. It just seems that way. Uh, the Winnipeg Jets will uh, be on uh, Friday, game one of their series against Nashville. Two best teams in a regular season meeting in round two. And the winner of the Bruins-Leafs game we just talked about, they'll start in Tampa on Saturday, and that'll be the other second round series. Oh, uh, U18 World Championship Canada against Sweden. Both teams undefeated in the preliminary round. This is the final game of the prelims. Uh, Alexis Lafreniere. Remember that name. Plays in the Quebec League for Sidney Crosby's old junior team in Ramouski. He is considered a top prospect for the 2020 draft. Very much into the future. Mo Salah and uh, Liverpool against Roma. Semi-finals, Champions League, first leg. Salah, that's brilliant. I just said that. And then Salah again. He's loose. Look at the little chip there. Two nothing. Roberto Firmino would score twice. Liverpool would be leading at this point five nothing. But Roma scored two late goals, and I know they still lost five two. But those two away goals would mean big things if they rally at home next week. Jekyll with this goal five two the final. So they'll need to win at least three nothing to beat Liverpool and make it to the Champions League final. Those goals are so important. I know, but remember, uh, Roma did it against yeah, Barcelona. They were down and then won 3-0 at home, and because of the one-away goal they got in the first game, they won the uh, two-game series. There you go. Cool. All Thanks, right. Square. You're welcome. Thank you, Wait Squire. a minute, you didn't say thank you. One of the world's most famous illusionists is being forced to reveal some of his secrets. David Copperfield is being sued by an audience member who claims he was injured during one of Copperfield's signature tricks. On the stand, David Copperfield forced to break a cardinal rule of magic, revealing the secret behind the illusion. I'm trying to dance around secrecy stuff. The magician is being sued by 58-year-old Gavin Cox, a British tourist chosen from the audience to participate in a performance called 13. During the illusion, participants are placed in a cage hovering above the stage and covered by a curtain. Then they exit and are guided through a series of passageways to the outside of the building, then led back inside, reappearing in the back of the theater. Is it important to you for them to do it as quickly as possible or not? No, safety would always come first. Cox says while being hurried outside, he slipped on construction dust, suffering a brain injury, resulting in $1.3 million in medical bills. Cox's attorney is alleging at least two other participants were also injured and will be called to the stand this week. Has anyone ever fallen during the runaround? Not to my knowledge, okay. except for Mr. Cox. Attorneys for Copperfield say over 100,000 audience members have performed the trick without injury. The performer, who's made millions believe him on stage, now has to convince 12 jurors in a courtroom. Steve Patterson, NBC News. 
Whoa, he flashed a smile at those jurors. <laughs> Just laying on the charm, or at least trying to. Now, you did that. You were in that trick. I did. I was in it, and I was shocked when the curtain closed and they said, run! I'm like, seriously, we're running? That's, yeah, that's how it trick. works? That's the trick? The but trick yeah, is sure sprinting. Enough. And then he talks to the audience afterwards and says, hey, keep the secret. Which, of course, I did until right now. <laughs>